You know, as we, as we kick this off, I want to tell you about my first interaction with the book of Romans. Um, my journey to becoming a pastor has been quite comical. Soon after I became a Christian, uh, I was feeling a call into ministry, and I had this moment on spring break of my senior or my junior year. Uh, I was on this retreat with the youth group, and I was in high school. And I'm not sure if it was the late night nachos or the Holy Spirit, but I felt this call, this urge to lay my life before the Lord to be served as a vessel for the kingdom of God. So at the beginning of my senior year, at barely 17 years of age, I was invited to candidate for a youth pastor position uh, at a church in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, where I grew up. So it seemed at this moment that my inner call and this outer call were kind of being confirmed. I didn't really know what that meant, but I've never been one to shy away from a challenge or an opportunity. And so uh, I showed up. <laughs> and, um, and they looked at me and they said, get in the pulpit and preach. We want to see what you've got. And I was like, what? You have got to be kidding me, right? And again, not being one to shy away from a challenge, but I did. I'd never preached before, never preached a sermon or anything like that before. And, and I'm not sure what I preached, but I am sure that I had no clue what I was doing that day. And when I'd finished my, my little homily of probably 10 minutes, in true small Baptist church Kentucky fashion, they asked me to step outside in the fellowship hall next door, and they voted they voted, the whole church voted on me, whether they liked me, whether they wanted to hire me, and it was a longer meeting than you would expect. <laughs> kind of uh, awkward, it seemed about like it was an hour long, probably wasn't that long, but they extended a call to me uh, to become the youth pastor at Fellowship Baptist Church in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and my trajectory into vocational ministry began at the bright age of 17. Now, one of the most comical things about that year of ministry for me is that we had a church league basketball team, um, and we were not bad, which is good in Kentucky. The crazy thing was this. I was the head coach and the starting point guard at the same time. And, uh, and I, you know, we studied Romans that year, and I learned a lot about myself. Uh, and that was really the first time I'd ever studied the book of Romans, like in real life, like flying the pl like building the plane as we're flying it, right? And I remember when we reached Romans 9, where we're getting to today. I finished reading the text, and I looked up at this group of small group of kids I had, and I said, this can't be true. <laughs> and I walked out of the room. And I remember being so bewildered by the word of God in that moment, because it seemed to counter everything that I thought to be true of God. And that year I learned that I had a lot to learn about God. At the end of the school year, I resigned, and I started attending a small Bible college on a quest to know God and to more effectively make him known. And that was 19 years ago. We have a lot of ideas about God and how he works in this world church. But as John Stott has said, the human conscience is fallible and it's culturally conditioned, meaning this. We are not objective about who God is or who we are in light of who he is without the absolute truth of the Holy Scriptures informing our conscience. Today, Romans 9 continues with this big, majestic theme of election, which is this, God's sovereign choice of his people. Now, the big mystery of Romans 9 is this, is that why have God's chosen people, the Israelites, 
the ones that he delivered from bondage to slavery in Egypt, and from the Assyrians, and from the Babylonians, and from the Romans, the ones that he delivered from sin, why do they reject Jesus, the answer to their biggest problem as the Messiah? That's the big question that we have. And why have the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, more readily embraced Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, as the Messiah? There are many sub-factors that could play into answering these questions today, but Paul wants to make one thing absolutely clear in Romans 9. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. And what I want you to know today, that whatever you have walked in here experiencing, it is not an accident. God is sovereignly in control of his creation, and every person on the face of the planet that will embrace his plan of salvation. God chooses his people. He plucks them out of a life of death that we've earned for ourselves, and he showers mercy upon us. And he did this before the beginning of time, before he made anything. Here's what Ephesians 1 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This theme of election is the broad theme of God being in control, but it also has a more specific application that Paul talks about here that reveals God, God's careful and his wise hand in our salvation that's known in the Bible as predestination, which involves a very personal and meaningful call of God in the lives of believers. Listen to what Ephesians 1 says. In love, not in hate, not in despise, in love, he predestined his children for adoption as sons and daughters. That's intimate language toward us. Sure, it's controversial in the church, but here's the interesting thing. Over the years, I have found that the only people that have a problem with this doctrine are the ones that benefit from it. Still, we have questions. We want to know why so many reject Jesus. Why don't they just believe what they've heard, right? Just like when I was running as a lost boy in my teenage years, I was getting what I wanted even though I was miserable, right? But God stepped in and showed me another way to live through the gospel and through a group of friends. And he chose that, he chose that moment, he chose that pathway before the beginning of time to let me become shattered on a middle school basketball court in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, so that I could come to saving faith in Jesus. I was not looking for God. When you became a believer, I'm more than willing to bet you weren't really looking for him either. That's how I know that this is true. I had no plans of ever choosing to follow Jesus until he readied my heart and shattered my worldly dreams. And for some of us, that happened early on in life. Some of you grew up in a family that taught you to be a mess before Jesus early on. Others of you, that happened later in life. And still others of you, it is happening right this moment. For some people, God is doing this work right before our very eyes, church. I mean, just this week, 
I've had lunches and meetings with multiple people who are actively coming into the kingdom of God. Had lunch with a guy this week, never been in church before, man. Really like New City. I'm like, really? This is some heavy stuff we're talking. He's like, yeah, man, I want more of it. The kingdom of God is expanding in our midst, church. Isn't that amazing? I know election is true because I would have never chosen to follow God unless he first loved me, came to me, and called me to himself. And the same is true for you. The truth is, in our flesh, we, we, we think we want a God that's not in control of all things. That feels better to our humanity, right? It feels better to be in control. But we have no idea what we're asking for when that's our wish. We need God to be God. And today, we're going to feel a little smaller than we did when we walked in. And I think that's by God's design. Here's our big idea for today. God's sovereignty in our salvation is his careful attention to our souls in the midst of a careless and disregarding world. If you're a note taker, a few points here. First one's this. Is God's sovereignty, I'll just tell you where I'm going and then we'll go there. God's sovereignty is the reason we are passionate about evangelism. Just what Brian prayed about for us. The second thing is this, is rejection of salvation is a matter of the heart in which we actually freely choose. The third thing is this. All mercy belongs to God, and he is free to apply it to whoever he wishes. Let's dig in together. All right, the first thing, God's sovereignty is the reason we're passionate about evangelism. So Romans chapter 8 talks about this idea that at the beginning of Romans 8, it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of what God has done to his son on our behalf. We're no longer condemned. The end of Romans 8 says there's no separation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So no condemnation, no separation, which leads to this overarching uh, um, comfort that we have because we belong to Jesus. Here's what Romans 9.1 then picks up with. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, as Brian was telling us. He says, for I wish that I myself was accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he goes on to tell all the benefits that it is to be an Israelite at this time. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So this, this line of thinking as we, as we dig into this. This, this false dichotomy says this, if you believe in God's sovereignty over in salvation, then you won't ever live on mission or share the gospel with people. It's already, it's already decided either way. So it's no use in us entering in. It's, it's like we think that our job is to determine who the elect are and then share the gospel with them. Like we're walking around looking for a little kind of maybe stripe on everyone's back saying, okay, they're, they're elect, let's share the gospel with them, right? That's not what the scripture ever teaches. To know who the elect are is never our job. Our job is to be faithful stewards of the gospel that he's entrusted to us. Our job is to scatter the gospel, to pray for it to take root, and to disciple people who respond to it, and then sometimes shake the dust off our feet when people trample the good news as we keep seeking his face. Sometimes you have to keep moving on, church. That's our role. And this doctrine of election and sovereignty is intended to give us greater security and boldness on mission with Jesus. 
Because we can't make people believe. Not even the most persuasive person can make anyone else truly believe. God has to give them a new heart. We can't make people believe we are, because of this, we are free to boldly stay in our lane. Even though it's painful to watch and experience rejection, especially with those that are closest to us. And I know that firsthand. C.H. Spurgeon, an old Baptist pastor, 1800s, once, was once asked how he reconciled these truths against each other. You know, God's sovereignty on the one hand and our responsibility to be faithful on the other hand. And his answer was great. He says, I wouldn't even try. I never try to reconcile friends. <laughs> In other words, God's sovereignty and our responsibility are friends of each other. They cooperate with one another, which leads us to a more bold application and lifestyle in that truth that we stand. The point that we must grasp is this, is that divine sovereignty is not an enemy to the responsibility or free will of mankind. They are friends that work together. And we must choose to hold both of these truth, both of these full-throated truths with the same grasp on one another. God is absolutely in control, and he has called me to be absolutely faithful with what he's given me. And when you hold both of those two together, you walk down that narrow line of faithfulness to God. But Paul can see God's careful attention to preparing the way for Jesus, for the Jews, uh, for Israel, God's chosen people to receive the Messiah. He can look back and see it all through the Old Testament. He says, for the Jews, they were the first, this is uh, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, they were the first to have the promise of adoption through covenantal union. God told Abraham he would make them his family by faith, not by what they do. They received that. They were the first to receive the glory and the law as it shone on Moses' face, right? I mean, the glory of God shines on Moses' face and God personally speaks his plan to Moses as he writes it down for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. They were the first to experience the, the tabernacle worship in the wilderness and the promises of redemption scattered throughout the Old Testament. His pursuit of his children is so clear as you read the scriptures. For all that he's chosen, their stories are the same. There's never been a day when God has not been pursuing me with everything that he has. And that is our story in Jesus. And for Paul, like you and I, this drives us to be in anguish over the lost people that have rejected Jesus Christ in our lives. But we know that they are ultimately blind to the truth of the gospel because of the God of this world, as, as 2 Corinthians teaches us. For Paul, it was the lost Israelites. For you, it's probably your lost neighbors and your friends. And Paul goes as far to say that it is his desire, that, and it's so strong for his people to receive Jesus as the Messiah, that he would even personally suffer if it would mean that they would believe. So Christian, I think it's a moment for us to kind of pause and take inventory for just a moment about our own relationships. Who are those right now that are far from God in your life, and what is your responsibility to them? Because when you become a believer, there's a stewardship of the mysteries of God, the gospel itself, that is entrusted to each and every one of us. And the question is, 
you know, not are we going to prove ourselves to God, but how are we going to be faithful in light of what he's done? And what's in the way of us becoming more and more faithful to be stewards of the gospel? What's your lane that God has called you to live in? It's not to convince people to become elect, right? That's God's job. It's your job to be a steward of the gospel. Have you been a responsible steward of the gospel toward those people that God's called you to be in your sphere of influence? And if you say, I, you know, I, I have, I've tried that, Pastor. I told them i go to church and they didn't take the bait, right? Of course they didn't because you didn't talk about Jesus, right? You talk about church, they're going to hate it. Talk about Jesus, they'll, they'll open up maybe, right? Are you sure that they're rejecting Jesus or are they just rejecting cultural Christianity like most of us should anyway, right? Have you made the gospel plainly known to those in your spheres of responsibility? Not yet believers first hear it from Christians, and then the Spirit meets our obedience and grants faith. Romans 10, 13, we'll talk about this next week. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of our Lord. In other words, the Lord entrusts us with the gospel. We preach the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on the behalf of sinners. And God grants faith to the elect. That's how this whole thing is set up. God doesn't say invite them to church. Church is a byproduct of being a believer, right? My prayer is that because of our security in the gospel, it would drive us to be bold with the truth. Do you remember Jonah's story? Jonah would have rather drown than be obedient to the, the call to be faithful with the gospel, right? The Ninevites, right? The Ninevites. When he was called to go to Nineveh, that nasty Nineveh, right, that disgusting city, when he was called to go there, he said he, he would have rather drowned. He jumped off a boat in the middle of the ocean. But what happened when he, God finally, you know, sovereignly got him to Nineveh? The biggest revival the world has ever seen. At least 120,000 people are going to be in heaven because Jonah finally got to Nineveh, right? And God used even that man who didn't want to be there to be faithful with the gospel. But our question is still this. What if the gospel is rejected, pastor? Glad you asked. Let's go to our second point here. Pick up in verse 6. Rejection of salvation. I told you all we were headed to deep water today, okay? It's going to be good, though. God's going to meet us here. Rejection of salvation is a matter of the heart in which we actually freely choose. So Paul anticipates this kind of knee-jerk reaction to God's promise of election. It sure seems like God should be able to get his chosen people to respond to his own son as the Messiah, right? And we carry this into our own thinking, too. We think that God's love is careless and it's ineffective when we look around at all the unbelief and lostness in the world, even though we've tried to be faithful. But rejection of salvation has always been in play since the beginning of time. This is not a new thing, church. Why? Because physical Israel is not the same as spiritual Israel. Romans 2 reminds us, as we, as we studied that, that what counts is a circumcision of the heart. A clean heart is what counts, not clean behaviors. And for Christians, we can, we can say it like this. Physically, those 
that are, uh, that are, that are in the church aren't, aren't always the same that are those that are in the spiritual church, right? It's, theologically, it's called the difference between the visible and the invisible church, right? Visible Israel, uh, invisible uh, Israel, cut to the heart. <clears throat> and you say, but pastor, no, 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 this is about Israel. This is not about the church. Those are two different things. I told you we're going to deep water. Doesn't God have two different plans for Israel and the church? We're going to talk more about this in Romans 11, but I want to give you a little key here. This is a key. When you think about the relationship of Israel and the church, this is a verse that you should never forget. It comes from Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. It won't be on the screen, but you can look it up for yourself. Paul says this to this question. Does God have a different plan for Israel than he does the church? He says, if you're a Christ, so if you're in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you are Abraham's offspring. You are spiritual Israel. Heirs according to the promise. So you can look at your neighbor right now and say, I'm as Jewish as they come, brother. Because spiritually, that is what is true. And this is a key to us being able to interpret the Bible. And this is what makes the Old Testament so meaningful when you realize that it's actually your story, believer. What matters is regenerate faith, a heart that's been made alive by God. Not if you hear the promise before or after Jesus arrived, right? God doesn't have a different plan for King David than he does for you. It's the same plan of redemption. Regenerate Israel, meaning a circumcised heart, are the same people that have a regenerate heart after they heard the gospel of Jesus. This is, as Colossians, Colossians 1 says, the latter part of Colossians 1, is the mystery that's been hidden for ages. That Christ in you, the glory of God, is also for Gentile believers. Now, I don't know who said it, but the saying goes like this as we're thinking about, you know, the difference in the visible and the invisible church. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. It's pretty good. But a relationship to the church, what it does reveal and expresses, um, it reveals and expresses what you have become as a believer. Theologically, visible in the invisible church. And this is important to remember because this has always been in play. This has, been, this has always been God's design, that there would be physical Israel and then there's the remnant that actually believed. So that's God's plan. Now I think we're ready to read Romans 9, 6 through 13 with that kind of a background. So here it goes. Paul says this, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of flesh who are the children of God. It's not just, it's not just your kids because you brought them to church, in other words. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring, those who actually believe. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah, he's given some examples here, shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and not because of works, but because of him who called, and I'm sorry, I skipped a line. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor bad, that's the key, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older 
will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau are hated. There's the hard one right there, right? What do you mean, God? Jacob I loved and Esau, they're both made in your image, God. How can you say that? Paul uses two very different examples of two sons from the Old Testament to illustrate what he's talking about here. First, he's using Isaac, and he doesn't say Ishmael, but he alludes to Ishmael. And then a little more clearly, he talks about Jacob and Esau, right? These two boys came from the same family. They're twins. Both boys were awful people, okay? If you need any evidence of this, go back and listen to our Genesis series. We talked about it thoroughly. They were terrible people. Don't forget that. Yet, so Esau, he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. Yes, he did that. He gave up his inheritance for, because he was hungry. And he was in a bad place from the get-go. We know that about Esau. But Jacob's name literally means deceiver, and that's who he would become. Both boys were on a path of destruction, and neither of them deserved the gift of grace or salvation. But God was patient with not one, but both of those awful boys in different ways. When you read about Esau's life, he and Jacob did end up reconciling to some degree. It's in the, you know, 30, uh, Genesis 34, 35, somewhere in there. Um, and God was patient with Esau, even blessing his family with such abundance of crops and animals and le- that the land could not support his descendants. And they became known as the Edomites, and they kind of carved out their, only, their own space. God shared common grace to Esau. But then with Jacob, Jacob was saved, and the heritage of spiritual Israel, regenerate Israel, those that will be in heaven, did carry on through him. But it was not smooth sailing because he was such an awful person. Jacob was converted as he literally wrestled with God because he was so contentious in his spirit. And Genesis 32 tells us that he walked with a limp for the rest of his life, okay? And not not to mention the generational sin that his descendants would experience as we read through Genesis, the 30s and 40s of Genesis. Uh, They would inherit from his past. That would lead to one of his daughters being sexually assaulted because because of his abdication as a father. And 11 of his sons trying to kill his favorite son and then selling him into slavery and covering it up for decades until the sovereignty of God revealed it through the famine that struck Israel. Salvation by grace is not an easy road for Jacob the deceiver, whose name would be changed to Israel, or for any of us. You become a Christian, your life gets harder, right? That's, how, that's why you need grace. That's why it all depends on God. So when the scriptures say, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, you need to know that it's an idiomatic expression. God hates sin because it is opposed to his son. Esau's life was based on sin and that never changed. And eventually, Jacob slash Israel's life was based on faith, but it came from God. Jesus would use a similar idiomatic expression in Luke 14, 26. He says this, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Disciples of Jesus, in other words, must abandon our hold on our natural relationships to this world and others because of our spiritual identity. It doesn't mean that we abandon them. It means that we, 
We abandon our hold, our grip, that this must be the thing that saves me. Because God is your Savior. It's an expression. It's to say that when you become a follower of Jesus, when you become regenerate Israel in the Old Testament, that the order of God's love rearranges everything else in your life. When he sets the full intensity of his electing love on our lives, on one of his children, he stops at nothing to make us his. But that does not mean that he's evil to those that he doesn't choose. He's still gracious. Church, not one Esau in this world will be forced into eternity without God against their will. God simply passes over some, and he chooses to intimately and aggressively save others. And we have no say in how that happens. But there's no difference between the original nature of the Jacobs of this world and the Esau's of this world. They're still awful people, as Romans 3 tells us, apart from God. It's God that gives new hearts to his spiritual children. So because this is the plan of God and what he wills comes to pass, not all will receive the gift of salvation, but that should not lead us to doubt God. We don't have to live as functional universalists, guys. This is why the condition of the heart is the most important thing to pay attention to, first in and with of yourself, and then in the lives of others that God has called you to pursue and lead. When we are only paying attention to the physical aspects of faith, it's very possible to miss the heart. When you're only paying attention to church attendance, using the right Christianese language, following a certain moral code of what it looks like to be a Christian, and looking the part, it's very possible that we could be inadvertently ignoring the very thing that actually makes someone a Christian, their heart. So what would it look like for you to be more attentive to the condition of your own heart and the hearts of others that God has called you to pursue this week? Let's start with yourself. When I'm attentive to my own heart, I'm paying attention to the things I'm paying attention to, right? Where is my heart drifting today? Is it drifting towards Zillow? Is it drifting toward Amazon? Is it drifting toward things I shouldn't be looking at? My heart is on the run from God. When you pay attention to the things that you're paying attention to, you're being attentive to your own heart because your heart will follow the things that you're paying attention to. To pay attention to our own heart means that I'm willing to risk all of who I am and all that people perceive me to be for the opportunity of being more fully known by God and his people. So friend, I ask you this this morning, where is your heart really headed right now? You see, it's this principle in Matthew 7, that before we look at the sins of others, we look at the sins of our own hearts. And Jesus says it's kind of like this, you've always got a plank in your own eye and you're kind of looking at a speck in someone else's eye. So what is the plank work that God is calling you to do because he loves you so much this morning? Now, for others, what would it look like doing that kind of speck work after we do the plank work? What would it look like to not be repelled by the smoke screen of sin that boxes people into a life without God at the center? To not be so repelled with how sinful they are, but to seek the heart through the sin. Maybe you'd be willing to risk more of your reputation to be close to people who actually have hearts that are ripe to receive the gospel. 
Jesus did this over and over and over again. Do you know that, four, that two of the 12 disciples that he first called were cultural scumbags of the day? Matthew and Levi were tax collectors. They were legal thieves. Jesus said, I want you on my team. How many of us are willing to risk our own reputation to take the gospel to thorny places because we are so loved by God? What does that mean for you today? Now, Paul anticipates more objections to the loving and gracious doctrine of election. And this time it has to do with our understanding of mercy and justice in light of God's sovereignty. Let me read these next 15 verses here to kind of wrap up the rest of our text today. Paul says this, he says, what should we say then? Because we're saying it's not fair, right? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and he uses a bunch of examples here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul says, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God, who's the one that has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever, whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his own glory of mercy, which he has prepared before, beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews uh, only, but also for the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice something about that verse, if you can, if you can leave it back up there. We think, we th like, what about double predestination, Pastor? That's what some of you are going to email me about this week. Here's what I want you to see. He has endured with much patience. That's, Acts 17 talks about this. God is being patient, but there's going to be a, there's a time clock on his patience. He's being patient with the world right now, right? He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath that prepared themselves for destruction, right? That's what's happening in the world. We've all prepared ourselves for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. We've all prepared ourselves for destruction. The difference is, is that God has reached in and prepared some of us for glory. And that's the beauty of his mercy. He didn't have to do that, church. And so when we look at him, we say it's not fair. We don't understand what we're saying. He goes on to say, as, as indeed it says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her whom was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sins of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not led us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So the Lord lays it all out here. We are in deep water. We're in the deep end. But God, here's the bottom line. As much as this hurts your feelings and mine too, it's a comfort. God is the only one with mercy in the world. There are people that you might think have mercy. God is the originator of all true and genuine mercy. And he gets to choose how he uses that bank of mercy that he has. He allows some people to stay hardened toward himself, that have prepared themselves for destruction. But God has never hardened a heart that didn't first harden itself. God raised Pharaoh up to show his mighty power come against him. And Pharaoh folded like a house of cards under his might. Pharaoh, the strongest imaginable person in the known world at this time, collapsing before the presence of God and folding into his plan. That is the power of our sovereign God. Paul goes on to use the imagery of a, a potter and a clay wheel. The potter is in command of the clay, and so much of life in this world is that God's creation desires to be the creator. And friends, we will never be that. It doesn't matter how many towers of Babel that we build and how close we can get to us thinking that we're God, we will never be that. And if nothing else, passages like this serve to elevate our awareness of the majesty of God and humble our views of self. If you walk out today feeling small, God's word is probably working mightily in your heart. Job is a great example of this. Once through the influence of three bad friends, questioned God after tragedy struck his life, and God responds to him. Job 38, 1 through 5. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by his words without knowledge? Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job, tell me. Do you have some understanding about this? Job, who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Surely you were the one that stretched out the line, Job. And church, the line of questioning goes on like this for not one, not two, not three, but four chapters to give Job perspective to remind Job of who he is and who God is. And I think today we need to be reminded of the same thing. Job answers in Job 42 like this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Lord. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I have heard, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. That's the difference. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. We hate to hear this initially, right? This is not going to be preached probably in any other church in Atlanta this week. Because we think that's not fair. And it seems like injustice on God's part. But the reality is this, we don't want to talk justice with God. We do not want to question what is fair to our God. 
Our our salvation is not primarily a justice issue. It is first and foremost a mercy issue. And he holds all of the mercy. Then it becomes a justice issue. Romans 8 says, those whom he predestined, he calls. Those whom he justifies and those whom he glorifies. God shows mercy and then he takes care of our legal problems, right? But it's his mercy that we cry out for this morning. The first movement towards salvation is not our cry for justice. That's the wrong place to start, church. The first movement of salvation is God's miraculous mercy toward us. And when he chooses to show mercy to his people, he carries it to the very end, no matter what it costs. And Jesus is the example of that, isn't he? He's taken it to the very end to bring us all the way home. And he's raised his son up from the dead so that we can be secure forever. And so how do we respond to this? I think a good example of this is the difference in how the Pharisee and the tax collector responded to God's mercy. Luke 18, 13 says this. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breasts and he said, God be merciful to me. A sinner. Church, may that be our posture this morning. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.